0: Welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Brian Leiter, Carl N. Llewellyn, Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the Center for Law, Philosophy, and Human Values at the University of Chicago. We will discuss his article, The Roles of Judges in Democracies, A Realistic View, which is published in the Journal of Institutional Studies and will appear in his forthcoming book, from a realist point of view. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much for having me and and for doing this. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Me too. I'm so happy that Matt Teichman uh, made the connection, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this really excellent and I think provocative article um, I wanted to start with kind of a big picture question. So people often question the legitimacy of judicial decision-making based on kind of the idea of counter-majoritarianism or the counter-majoritarian difficulty. What do they think the problem is? And why do you think that they might be wrong? So the, the, the classic version of the
1: counter-majoritarian difficulty um, was supposed to be the scenario of unelected judges um declaring uh legislation unconstitutional and thus defeating the will of the majority as expressed through the legislative process. And uh one of the one of the issues I emphasize uh in this article is that countermajoritarian difficulty um is really predicated on an unrealistic indeed um a kind of fantastic picture of what democratic processes are actually like. And that's the first part of my realism is to be realistic about uh, democracy. <clears throat> and in this regard, I rely heavily, though not exclusively on uh, work by two political scientists, uh, Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels uh, in a book called Democracy for Realists, but it's a book that draws on a, quite a lot of political science literature. So, for the counter-majoritarian or more precisely the counter-democratic difficulty to matter. And the reason I qualify it that way is, of course, um, parliamentary systems, not ours, but parliamentary systems, um, the legislature does not necessarily represent a majority. Um, And, of course, even in our system, um, legislative output does not represent um, a majority because the U.S. Senate is not a majoritarian institution. We all know that. And the House of Representatives, because of massive amounts of gerrymandering, is no longer a majoritarian institution. Now, those are already very serious problems. but We're going to put them to one side um, and talk about the counter-democratic difficulty, because it's still the case that if courts invalidate Legislation passed by a democratically elected legislature, even if it's not a majoritarian one, there looks to be some kind of conflict. Here's the problem for the invalidation of legislation to really be counter democratic, it seems to me two things have to be true. Um, One is that people actually vote for their representatives in the legislature with the expectation that they will enact particular kinds of policies or um, pass particular kinds of legislation, right? And the second thing that has to be true is that the legislature in passing legislation has to actually be try- intending to enact the will of this um, democratic constituency. Both those assumptions are false. Uh, I think the falsity of the second one may be more familiar these days Um Partly because of the public choice critiques of the legislative process that are familiar in uh, in much of the legal academy, this is the worry that legislators cast their votes for all kinds of reasons, many of which have nothing to do with the policy in question or only indirectly with trying to achieve a particular legislative purpose. So, one worry is that um, the legislative process, the the actual enactment of legislation doesn't necessarily reflect an intention to achieve particular policy objectives. But the issue I think that's less often appreciated is that voters do not in fact vote for representatives because they want them to achieve particular policy objectives. And I think this is always uh, surprising um, to law professors in particular, because uh, law professors, and indeed Educated people of the kind who are listening to this podcast um, are not typical voters. Um, They are what Philip Converse, a famous American political scientist, called many years ago ideologues. And he didn't mean anything pejorative by that. He just meant they are voters with very definite ideological views who actually do care and are well informed about the ideologies and policies of their elected representatives. They are extremely atypical voters. Converse estimated them to be 3% of the voting populace. The vast, 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 vast majority of voters have almost no idea what the policies are of the people they vote for. They vote based on their party identification, and they identify with particular political parties based on non-political factors, in particular their group identity right African American voters, evangelical Christian voters, labor union voters, southern whites, right, urban liberals, right? pick your favorite group category, okay um and what the political science research shows, I think very powerfully is that um people identify with a party because members of their group do, and then they adjust their own views, right to those of the party leaders. So rather than picking the party because it represents their views, they adapt their views to the party that they happen to identify with for other reasons. And the Aiken and Bartels' book was actually appeared before the Trump phenomenon. The Trump phenomenon uh, illustrates uh, 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 this this voter behavior phenomenon quite well. Prior to Trump, Republican voters overwhelmingly, in opinion polls, identified Russia as an enemy of the United States and as a major security threat. After Trump, the majority of Republican voters no longer identified Russia as a security threat to the United States or even as our enemy. It really astonishing change. In other words, Republican voters readjusted their views. <laughs> Based on the fact that Trump was not so hostile to Russia compared to prior, prior Republican Party officials. Now, back to the counter-democratic difficulty. The problem is, is if this is what's going on in voting behavior, right? Then there is no sense in which a court that overturns uh, democratically enacted legislation is actually right? Contravening the will of the people, because what the legislature does and who's in the legislature doesn't actually reflect people's views about what policies ought to be enacted. And if that's right, right, then it's not clear what the problem is supposed to be with, or let me put it differently. It's not clear what the moral problem is, with overturning legislation if it doesn't really represent the views of the people. The counter-democratic difficulty always got its moral force from the claim an unelected court is undoing what the people wanted. And that's not the case, because the legislative process doesn't reflect what the people want, right? if realism about democracy is correct.
0: Well, so just to to clarify for listeners, I mean, in, in my experience, legal realism is often sort of paired with criticism of originalism or other kinds of perceived conservative approaches to judicial decision making. But it seems like the critique that you're levying goes a lot broader to include what might be conceptualized as like liberal views of judicial decision making as well. So let me, uh, let me
1: say two things about that. One, uh, make a kind of clarificatory point, which is the view about the legislative process I described is not, uh, is not really a version of any kind of legal realism, right? It's realism about democracy. Um, but I am also a legal realist. Um, so in that sense, it's, uh, the, these things are, are connected, um, but now to go to the, the crux of the question that you asked. Um, as a legal realist, right, uh, I believe, based on the evidence, that um, courts and especially appellate courts right, inevitably and unavoidably have a great deal of discretion in how they decide cases. This is especially true of the US Supreme Court which I just refer to as a super legislature because that is what it is. So think just for a moment about some of the facts about the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, U.S. Supreme Court gets uh, about 8,000 appeals each year from the uh, appellate courts, from the federal appellate courts. Of those roughly 8,000 appeals, they pick about 80 cases to decide. It should be utterly unsurprising that the 80 cases that they pick are ones where the law is quite unclear or uncertain, right? After all, if the law were clear and certain, the case probably would have been litigated. And if it were litigated, it wouldn't have been appealed. And if it had been appealed, there wouldn't have been a split among the different circuits and so on. So the U.S. Supreme Court is inevitably and overwhelmingly picking cases where the law is unclear and uncertain, meaning that how to decide the case is going to depend on an exercise of moral and political judgment by the justices. That's what legal realism says about the U.S. Supreme Court. I think something similar is true of the appellate courts. Um, There may be fewer cases at the appellate level, where an exercise of moral and political judgment is required, but there's still plenty plenty of them. But at the U.S. Supreme Court level, it's almost nothing but the justices exercising moral and political judgment. They aren't a pure legislature. Right? They are a super legislature in the sense that they can override Congress on constitutional matters. Right? But they have a quasi-legislative role to play. It's only quasi-legislative because... <clears throat> They can't decide just any issue, right? The cases have to be appealed to them. And um, the rulings they issue are limited to, right, the issues that are actually presented, right, in the cases that uh, they take, right? Whereas the actual legislature can, of course, address just about anything. But if that's right, right, if legal realism uh, is correct, then it means that the absolutely most important thing about uh, appointing a justice to the Supreme Court or a judge to the U.S. Court of Appeals, um, the Federal Court of Appeals, uh, is going to be uh, their moral and political views. Right? What kind of moral and political judgment will they exercise? Um, and you are quite right that this uh, this cuts both ways right, in the political spectrum, okay? Um, why was Amy Coney Barrett, um, put forward, um, to fill the seat, uh, to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat? Um, it wasn't because she's a very good lawyer, though I'm happy to believe she is. It isn't because she's, uh, you know, and it was an excellent law student and a good circuit court judge. I'm happy to believe both of those things. I've heard she was a very good law teacher. I'm happy to believe that too. None of that has anything to do with why she was picked. Why? How do we know that? Well, because I don't know, there are 3,000 to 10,000 other lawyers who check all those boxes of excellent legal credentials, and none of them were chosen. She was chosen because of a perception, probably correct, about how she will exercise her moral and political judgment. Indeed, the decision that just happened yesterday, in which the court struck down restrictions on Public health restrictions on certain religious services in the state of New York suggest that they were correct, right? She vindicated her constituencies, namely religious conservatives. Um, I'm not saying that that decision, that the legally correct answer to that was obvious. It seems to me it could have gone either way. So the question is, how do you weigh the relative importance of public health versus restrictions on the ability to worship in the religious institution of, of your choice. And she struck that balance in the way a religious conservative would. Right? Um, that's why she was picked. That's why they're all picked. Okay, They are all picked for the quality of their moral and political judgment. Full stop.
0: Well, so when it comes to the discretion and judgment of the judges who are making these decisions, we often talk in law school and more broadly about kind of how to constrain or limit that judgment. And the conventional wisdom kind of is that that's what constitutions are are for. Do, do you think that's right? Or is that even possible?
1: So uh, I don't think it's right. Um, and I also don't think it's possible. Um, or let me put that in a slightly more nuanced ways. I think that that can be done to a limited extent, a very limited extent. Um, The problem is, as it were, built into the nature of law, including the nature of constitutions. So we can think of it this way. Um, The world is a very complex place and new problems crop up all the time. That's especially true when you're thinking about the difference between 1776 and 2020. A lot of new problems crop up. Right? But even with ordinary legislation, a legislature cannot anticipate all the issues that may be presented. We could, of course, completely constrain discretion by judges um, by adopting utterly idiotic and preposterous decision rules, like if it's unclear, defendant wins. <laughs> if it's unclear, decide for the appellant. okay? We wouldn't want to live in a system like that, right? We would constrain discretion very considerably, Um, but we would also uh, produce a lot of really appalling, foolish, and ridiculous decisions. It is a great virtue in a complex society to have an institutionalized procedure by which we can get authoritative resolution of disputes, and that is the court system. But for it to work effectively, the judges have to have judgment. It tells you how debased our discourse is, that the idea that judges should have judgment is not something people talk about. Um, But it's really pretty important, right? It's pretty important. They have to have judgment because the law cannot anticipate every problem that arises. And at the same time, we need disputes to be resolved. And we want them to be resolved sensibly enough. doesn't mean everybody has to agree on the result. But it does mean that the resolution, you know, um, can't be so far out there uh, that it makes no sense to anyone, let alone the parties that are that are before the court. So it's built into the nature of law that um, and the nature of the world that there are cases that will arise where judges have to exercise discretion. Um How much constraint do we want constitutional texts to impose upon later judges and later polities? I think it's a hard question. I think the reality is, and again, this is, I think, often not discussed in an honest way. Um, The reality is that uh, uh, constitutions are bitter pills to swallow um, because they can seriously impede and restrict what a contemporary democratic society can try to accomplish. And maybe some of those restrictions are worthwhile, and maybe some of them are not worthwhile. One result of that is that um in every constitutional, modern constitutional democracy I'm familiar with, um, the courts have uh developed ways to, as it were, update, modify and adjust the Constitution incrementally. Okay? Uh, My colleague David Strauss says that our system is what he calls a kind of common law constitutionalism. That is, um, if you want to know what the United States Constitution permits or prohibits, um, you won't learn anything by reading the Constitution. You'll learn almost nothing. You have to know how the courts have interpreted and applied the Constitution. And just as courts have developed the common law of torts and the common law of contracts, so too they have developed the common law of the Constitution. So the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law um, prohibiting uh, freedom of expression. And here's one thing we all know, every competent lawyer in the United States knows, that one thing that doesn't mean is that Congress cannot pass a law that um, inhibits the freedom of expression. Another thing we all know is that that same provision prevents the executive from taking actions that may impinge upon freedom of expression and so on and so forth. The plain language doesn't really tell us much about it. To know what it really means, we have to look how the courts have applied it over time. Um, Every legal system I'm aware of has something like that approach to the Constitution. It is a way of Gradually updating and amending the Constitution as applied to particular cases so that it doesn't bring modernity to a screeching halt, which is, of course, what um, genuine fidelity to the alleged original public meaning of uh, the 1776 Constitution would actually do.
0: In your paper, you talk about how judges should think about their obligations in exercising their judgment and discretion. And at least on my reading, you suggest that it should depend, in a sense, on the circumstances in which they're exercising it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think that ought to work and how judges ought to think about their judicial role.
1: Okay. So, um... Going back to something I said earlier, I think it it is inevitable that judges are going to have to exercise moral and political judgment, especially judges on the highest appellate courts like a Supreme Court or a constitutional court in other jurisdictions. So they will have to exercise moral and political judgment um, because of the very nature of law and the inevitable indeterminacies and new problems that arise. Um, Given that, right the question about what their obligations are is really a question about how they should exercise their moral and political judgment. And this is, of course, going to depend on your moral and political priors, Um, I am, in the technical sense, I use in the paper a progressive, by which I mean only the following, right? I mean that... um, we should aim for an expansion of the number of people in society who are able to enjoy various kinds of freedom. Um, Libertarians in this terminology are also progressives. Um, I am not a libertarian uh, because I have a different conception of freedom than they do. Um, But I take it libertarians like, say, Randy Barnett, who is a constitutional originalist, He is a progressive in my sense of the term. And my disagreement with him is about the nature and meaning of what freedom actually is. Um, If you aren't a progressive, right, then you will want judges to exercise very different kinds of moral and political judgment. Um, And I have nothing to say to you other than having suggested a framework for thinking about what judges do. Right. I mean, my bottom line recommendation is we ought to have an open discussion of what the moral and political views of the judges are because that's why they're being appointed. Right? That's my basic, most basic recommendation. Here. Now, I do think though, even a progressive judge right, has to take into account, right? Um, what the effects of progressive exercises of his or her discretion will be. Right? And that's going to depend on a lot of uh, questions about the legal and political norms in their society. Right. Um, the United States is a heavily court-centric society. Courts enjoy a high level of legitimacy, which not obvious they deserve, but that's often the nature with perceived legitimacy. They enjoy a lot of legitimacy. That means they can get away with quite a lot. Okay? Um, there are legal systems like the English, which are not court-centric. They are legislative-centric or parliamentary-centric, okay? Um, in the United kingdom, as uh, as I'm sure you know, but some of the listeners may not, um the uh, the Supreme Court cannot invalidate legislation as being unconstitutional. All they can do is advise Parliament that they think it conflicts with the Constitution, and then Parliament must decide. So in a system which is legislative legislature centric like that, where the legislature has the real weight of legitimacy and authority, Progressive judges need to proceed differently than they would in a society where courts are accorded a high degree of respect and and deference. So those are the kinds of considerations I think a progressive judge has to keep in mind. But even a reactionary judge, in my terminology, that is a judge who would like to see fewer people enjoy the privileges of freedom, right, Um, in the, you know, In the most extreme sense, the reactionary judge would like freedom to be enjoyed only by a certain elite caste, right, to the exclusion of everyone else. There aren't that many reactionary judges uh, around just yet. There are some reactionary law professors. Adrian Vermeule, I don't know if you had him on the podcast, right? You know, he's a reactionary Catholic and authoritarian, and there would be less freedom for many people in society if he were calling the shots, okay? (laughs) Um, A reactionary judge is going to have to weigh the same kinds of considerations the progressive judge weighs in terms of how exercises of their discretion, um, how effective they will or won't be, depending on the norms of the political and and legal culture in which they
0: operate. So you also suggest that it might depend on some degree on the nature of the democracy in which a judge is making decisions and and sort of the political um, qualities of the democracy in question. How, how ought that affect judicial decision-making if at all?
1: Yeah. Well, that's certainly going to be part of uh, what kind of exercises of discretion make sense, right? You know, a progressive judge in Hungary today, right. And Hungary is, you know, About as reactionary as any country in Europe at this point. Uh, It's leaning towards authoritarianism in various ways. It is becoming an illiberal democracy. Uh, A progressive judge in Hungary is going to have less latitude to achieve progressive ends, given that the dominant political culture right now is so hostile to um, progressive objectives. so again, it's another kind of constraint on on what is what is possible, and I think even you know judges um, who uh who may think of their role in a much more traditional fashion, you know think of our chief Justice Roberts with his you know judges call balls and strikes right that's nonsense, and he at some level he knows it's nonsense um, but you know it's very clear that he is sensitive to on the political culture in which the Supreme Court is making decisions. He has recently, much to the consternation of reactionaries, joined the so-called liberal justices in upholding legislation or failing to strike down uh, legislation that conservatives would like to be rid of. And the general suspicion is that he is motivated by these kinds of considerations. He's worried about the legitimacy of the court. He's worried that um, the court's decisions will not be credible or will not be enforced um, if they exercise their discretion too aggressively in a conservative or or reactionary direction. And I do think he's right to be worried about this, because again, as as you know, and many of many, but not all of your listeners will know, um, nothing in the Constitution accords the U.S. Supreme Court the right to say what the Constitution means. Nothing. Right? The Supreme Court has claimed that authority for itself quite successfully, basically since the late 1950s. Um, that particular conventional practice could change. Right? And one thing that will make it change is if the uh, the Supreme Court exercises too much of super legislative power that is out of sync with, what the legislature and the executive want to accomplish, and we may well encounter that in the in the next couple in the next couple of years. Given that the current Supreme Court is extremely conservative, right, and so will exercise its discretion in ways that may be in tension with a polity that appears to be um, more progressive, less conservative than that court.
0: Well, so Brian, in closing, it, it seems like. Judges currently exercise at least some restraint on their discretion. Do you think they do that for the reasons that you suggest or for other reasons? Um,
1: Well, so let me say, first of all, I don't really think that um, that judges constrain themselves that much in their exercise of discretion. I don't think they talk openly or honestly about it. You know, Judge Posner was the, you know, formerly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, was the exception. You know, uh, not quite a century ago, Cardozo, Justice Cardozo, was an exception. He was quite open about it. Um, You know, the ones who seem to be, as it were, restraining themselves um, are fewer and farther between. Chief Justice Roberts is the example I just gave. I think he's holding back a bit right? Okay. But none of his conservative colleagues on the current Supreme Court are the least bit embarrassed about exercising their discretion in conservative ways. Now, <clears throat> I think it varies how much they understand what they're actually doing. Um, you know, uh, Justice Thomas, I think, as it were, believes his bullshit, as we would say in New York. <laughs> I think, you know, I think he really believes that he is not exercising discretion when he is because he has a certain view about what the law requires of him, about what the constitution requires and so on. And um, so he doesn't think of himself as exercising any kind of discretion. Uh, uh, And I think something was uh, true of the, of the late justice Scalia. Um, You know, others, it's harder for me to say, you know, Justice Alito as his recent, you know, public, Lecture made clear, you know, is also a reactionary Catholic. That's a very important fact about him. And it's clear that he has a kind of, you know, visceral revulsion at certain political and moral developments in our society, right? Um, And that comes through in a lot of his decisions. Whether he understands that's what he's doing, I'm not really sure, right? Because he has a less clearly articulated Um, official judicial philosophy than, say, um, Thomas or Scalia or Justice Gorsuch, for example. And with Gorsuch, I think it's too early to say. Um, You know, I think, you know, he exercised discretion in the recent New York case about restrictions on religious services for public health reasons. No question about that. Um, you know, he followed a certain kind of textualist methodology in his decision that Title VII applies to discrimination uh, based on uh, transgender or sexual orientation identity, you yeah. um, know. So it's a little too soon, I think, to, to say with him and perhaps uh, some of the others. But by and large, I think most judges, when they're exercising discretion, don't think of themselves as doing that, Right they have, as it were, um, they believe their own bullshit, as I said, um, you know, uh, and that's not an uncommon phenomenon. It's, it occurs in all, all realms of life. Um, it occurs, dare I say it, even in law schools, right? Every law school, as you're probably aware, has a kind of self mythology about what they're about. And, uh, it, Bears a little bit of relationship to reality, but not that much. <laughs> but it becomes part of your identity. Okay? So I don't fault judges for falsely believing that they aren't exercising discretion when they are. Um, in a way, I think it's unsurprising and it's just a feature of human psychology that, uh, that people find themselves doing that kind of thing, being self-deceived, right, basically about what they're up to.
0: Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this uh, excellent and provocative and timely paper. Um, I'll put a link in the liner notes so listeners can check it out, and uh, I hope I hope you can come on again in the future.
1: Great, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Thanks for your questions. <music>
2: The guy that I send to Congress Better give me a good square deal Cause I'm not casting my vote for him Just because of his sex appeal The guy that I send to Congress Better see that I'm well content He isn't going to Washington Just to look at the monument He'd better be there are a-trying, a-trying, with all of his strength and endurance. endurance, or else he will soon be applying, applying, for unemployment insurance. insurance. The guy that I sent to Congress knows I've got a good memory. So while he's down there in Washington, he'd better, he'd better, he'd better, he'd better, he'd better take care of me. He'd better be in there a-trying, a-trying, with all of his strength and endurance, endurance. or else he will soon be applying, applying. for unemployment insurance. insurance. The guy that I send to Congress knows I've got a good memory. So while he's down there in Washington... He'd better, he'd better, he'd better, he'd better, he'd better take care of me!